Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Good evening and welcome to the Fred Paul Show, the first for 2023. We've made a few changes here at ADH and from now on, I will be sharing the 8 p.m. slot with Alan Jones. I'm on Mondays and Thursdays and Alan is on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. I'm excited to say that the ADH lineup will rapidly expand over the next few weeks as well. Watch this space as we bring on a range of new voices who are attracted to ADH's uncensored common sense approach to commentary. Starting with the brilliant young Alexandra Marshall, editor of The Spectator Australia's website who has been promoted from weekly guest on my show last year to host of her own starting next week. ADH is not an echo chamber. We thrive on robust debate. Nor, however, are we partisan, although that's not saying much these days. Under normal circumstances, we at ADH would mostly be liberal supporters, but that party has abandoned people like us lately. On most of the important issues of the day, from education and fis fiscal policy to net zero, there is barely a cigarette paper between Liberal and Labor. We are happy to give politicians from either side credit where it's due. We just wish they'd give us reasons to do so more frequently. Our opinions often reflect our lament for Australia when it was freer and more prosperous, which for anybody older than about 40 is still within living memory. This is less about nostalgia than it is about conservatism for a system that worked and encouraged entire generations to thrive. To be lifters, not leaners, as the great Robert Menzies once said. He'd probably be kicked out of the Liberal Party for saying that today. But there is one aspect of past political culture that we are in no hurry to emulate. Politicians in the past could assume a certain level of respect from the, from the electorate, partly because politics back then was less of a profession. These days, however, the ambition to occupy elected office is too often just that, an ambition rather than an opportunity to serve the community. 
The idea that we should feel grateful to live and work under their inspired stewardship has become too commonplace. Sure, the road to power is a treacherous one that requires hard work and difficult compromises, but you could say that of any hierarchy. How politics became such a magnet for megalomania is a mystery to us, but until it changes, we reserve the right to be skeptical about many politicians' motives. I'm sure you will agree that they have to earn our trust, not the other way around. One of the driving forces behind ADH is the disturbing belief that Australia, like most formerly powerful and respected countries in the Anglosphere, is teetering on the edge of a political, economic and cultural abyss. The Christian values upon which our and other Anglo nations were founded have been largely discarded in pursuit of wokeness and multiculturalism. These new social and political aspirations are based mostly on warm but ephemeral feelings. The proponents of multiculturalism are quick to celebrate how harmoniously people who speak different languages and adhere to different cultures can live together in Australia. Which is true. But this is not a prescription for long-term prosperity. A nation that is uni united behind diversity is doomed to fail. Diversity is not our strength, just as staying apart didn't keep us together during the pandemic. Without values and culture to bind us, we become cogs in a machine controlled by politicians and big business, with little or no recourse when things go wrong. The COVID pandemic proved that beyond doubt. It was known in March 2020 that the virus, the coronavirus, was lethal only to the very elderly or very ill. But entire healthy populations were locked up anyway, then not allowed out until they had been jabbed with an experimental vaccine that may yet cause more harm than good. But it wasn't harmful to the pharmaceutical companies. One of the worst mass medical experiments in history has also turned out to be the most profitable. Although that may change when the class action lawsuits that are already gathering momentum here and around the world finally get their day in court. The fact that all this was done with the full collaboration of every level of government in Australia should alarm us all. We here at ADH will do our best to make sure those alarms continue to ring loudly and often. Stay tuned for a documentary soon in which we talk about a wide range, we talk to a wide range of doctors who tried in vain to voice concern about the lockdowns and vaccine mandates. The willful disconnect between the reality on the ground and the view from the ivory towers of academia, government, and, it pains me to say, the media, will be felt by the injured and bereaved for years and will probably be studied by sociologists for generations. Well, speaking of credit for politicians where it's due, here is some credit for the new Federal Housing Minister, Tasmanian Labor MP, Julie Collins. She is the perfect advocate 
for social housing. Her own story reveals the profound benefits that can result from the government spending money on housing for the least fortunate. Collins's father died when she was only five months old. Her mum, Anne, was only 19 at the time. They moved in with Anne's parents, Hazel and Fred, a railway worker, who lived in a three-bedroom weatherboard housing commission home near the railway tracks in Franklin, south of Hobart in Tasmania. Fred taught Julie the benefits of hard work and community involvement. Although he and Hazel had 11 kids and little to give them, they also found spare change to donate to, donate to even less fortunate kids through World Vision. She said, quote, I learned from him that life is not always fair, that luck of birth means we are not all equal. He taught me to be generous and compassionate and to see things from other people's points of view. He was a very forgiving man who always saw the best in people, no matter their faults. He taught me tolerance, to be lenient when assessing others and their actions, end of quote. Julie's mum, Anne, soon remarried to a bloke called Andrew Collins, who became Julie's stepdad. They moved into their own housing commission home while both parents worked to save for a house of their own. Nine years later, they did so. But luck, luck would have it, they were forced to sell only a year later and returned to live again with Fred and Hazel. Julie's recollections of this period are both heartbreaking and inspiring. She said, quote, I recall vividly some neighbors and friends who struggled to put food on the table, to clothe and educate their children, and to pay for health costs. These decent people worked hard and sacrificed so much, and the inequality of it all remains with me today." Unquote. Julie got her first job at the age of 14. She couldn't afford to finish high school and was forced to enter the workforce full-time instead. She was elected to parliament in as she was elected to parliament as the member for Franklin where she grew up in 2007. Happily, her own three children with husband Ian are enjoying a slightly easier and more optimistic childhood than her own. So there are few people in Parliament more qualified than her to understand the benefits of public housing. This was the main focus of the legislation she introduced to Parliament last week. The legislation will pump $10 billion into creating 30,000 new social and affordable houses over the next five years, including 4,000 homes for women and children fleeing domestic violence. It will deliver what she calls long-term returns. If all the stories in public housing are the same as hers, she's right. But the problem with housing in Australia is more complex than simply helping families that are down on their luck. The most entrenched issues, uh, issue is created by politicians themselves. Australians are divided Australians are divided into three almost equal groups when it comes to housing. Those who have paid off their homes, those who have mortgages, 
and those who are yet to buy. It is in the interests of the first two groups, who are two-thirds of the electorate, that the value of housing stock continues to rise. For most of them, their home is their biggest financial asset, and politicians know that any policy that threatens to devalue it will cause a significant backlash in the ballot box. Former Labor leader Bill Shorten learned this lesson the hard way when he went to the 2019 election with a policy to add capital gains tax and reduce negative gearing on investment properties. Homeowners from both sides of the political divide were easily spooked and voted accordingly. Shorten lost. But there is another impediment to home ownership that Labor is also reprehensibly culpable for. It's compulsory superannuation, which is forcing young people to approach their life's major investments in reverse order. They start their, work, they, they start their working lives being forced to save for their retirement at a time when they would pr prefer to save up for a house a house in which they can settle down and raise a family. Saving for a deposit while house prices relentlessly rise is daunting even for the highest paid young professionals. For most, the best they can hope for is to buy a house when they are finally allowed to draw down their super 40 years later. This is a cruel hoax that the Labor Party is blithely making worse. The super guarantee rose a half a percentage point in July last year to 10.5% of workers' wages and will rise another half a percentage point this coming July. Worse, the government is now tapping the super funds to help build some of the housing it promised to build during the election campaign. This, this is the super funds which were created by Labor under Paul Keating in the 1980s, helping Labor implement a policy that places fund members' interests a distant second. Super funds are there to maximise returns for a dignified retirement, said Opposition Financial Services spokesman Stuart Roberts to the Financial Review in August last year. He went on, that's their job, full stop. They are not there to circumvent or to accompany government policy. It's got nothing to do with government policies. If they believe that they can get an outstanding return by investing in social housing that is better than any other investments, they will need to demonstrate that. But if they can't, then how is that in the best financial interest for members. It's their money. The outcome of all this will resemble the situation in Britain, where home ownership is low and rents are controlled by councils, who control most of the stock. Here, instead, here in Australia, instead of councils, we will soon have large superannuation funds owning large blocks of flats, dubbed affordable, because they are tiny and inadequate for raising families and squeezing out regular investors who would normally compete to keep rents competitive. 
If Housing Minister Julie Collins wants fewer people to rely, as she did as a child, on public housing, she might instead start proposing that governments stop meddling in the housing market altogether. She could also have a word with her friends in the state Labor governments and councils to stop obstructing new land releases. We are a huge nation with unlimited unused land. And we're a nation with a high proportion of tradies. The fact that we are now into the second or third generation of young people who are facing a life of renting is an absolute travesty and will in the long run tear at our social fabric, especially among those voters who Labor used to call their rank and file. The weekend before last, a 16-year-old girl called Stella Berry was attacked and killed by a shark while she was swimming in the Swan River, Fremantle. That brings to 13 the number of fatal attacks in Australia since 2020, five of them in Western Australia alone. It is arguable that almost all of these deaths could have been prevented, but doing so is not a priority for our politicians. This is emblematic of where politicians place people like you and I in relation to the environment. The federal government, for example, is planning to dismantle much of our energy production and infrastructure and replace it with a new expensive system that is supposedly greener. The fact that you and I will pay exorbitant rates for that energy or might not even be able to afford it at all matters little to them. The same applies to the expensive, inconvenient electric cars they want to coerce us into buying. But it is their policies regarding sharks that reveal just how low they rate ordinary people in relation to the environment. Because these policies are killing people. The West Australian government's response to this latest attack is laughable. A nearby stretch of the Swan River will be protected with a net the State Fisheries Minister, Don Punch, said. This will, quote, ensure the river is a great place for families to enjoy into the future, end of quote. Well, his definition of the words ensure and river must be different to mine. There are easier, cheaper and proven ways to ensure families can enjoy large sections of Australia's glorious rivers and oceans not just netted corners of them without being killed by one of the most ferocious animals on earth, and Don Punch's method isn't one of them. As a result, the death toll will continue to rise under Don Punch's watch, even as West, Australia's con West Australians continue to shy away from the state's stunning beaches and international tourists choose safer holidays in Thailand and Bali instead. Until recently, the beach was where Australians went to relax. But not anymore. There is no doubt that sharks are becoming more abundant. For one, fishermen keep telling us. Here's a shot from the Instagram account of a New South Wales fisherman called Trapman Australia. I recommend looking at it, actually. It's a, it's a fascinating account. 
This is a large tiger shark that was obviously eaten by something even bigger, most likely a great white. These kinds of photos and anecdotes of close encounters with large packs of sharks occur almost daily in Australia, again to the utter indifference of our elected politicians. Another reason to presume there are more sharks is that attacks are more frequent. Here is a graph of attacks in Australia during the past 60 years. These are reported attacks and encounters. The blue is fatal attacks, the orange is injuries, and the grey is where the person involved luckily escaped unharmed. Now, you'll notice that the past two decades have been increasingly dangerous. Some experts say this is because there are more people in the water, therefore more attacks. Perhaps, or perhaps not. Have a look at the year when the current trend took off. It starts at 2000, when there were three fatal encounters, nine that ended in injuries, and seven with no injuries. Did Australians all start flocking to the beach at the turn of the millennium? Or did something else happen that led to an increasing number of encounters with large marine predators? Perhaps it was this. In 1999, great whites, having been protected close to shore by some state authorities for a handful of years, were finally granted protection federally in all Australian waters, which extend 360 kilometres around the whole continent. These dangerous animals were suddenly off-limits to everyone. Even some fishing boats were compulsorily kitted out with video cameras and forced to report any whites they accidentally hooked or hauled up in nets. Saving these animals from extinction, extinction was now a serious business and penalties applied to anyone who didn't comply. In 2012, an amateur fisherman from Sydney saw a great white shark from his boat while he was fishing in Sussex Inlet, a couple of hours south of Sydney. He chased it with his boat, injured it with his propeller, then threw a rope around it, dragged it to shore, and killed it with a metal pole. This happened 10 years ago, so it is difficult to track the man down to ask his motives, but it's possible that he was doing a good deed. Sussex Inlet, you see, is a large body of inland water with only one long, narrow outlet to the ocean. A shark that strays into it is unlikely to find its way out anytime soon. Parts of Sussex Inlet are popular swimming and snorkeling spots. It's highly likely that that great white would one day have attacked or even killed a person, just as that shark did in the Swan River this month. Whatever his motives, it's very possible that the man who killed that shark saved a person's life. Nevertheless, he was charged and found guilty under the Federal Government's Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act. A spokesman from the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries was quick to remind everyone what a heinous act this was. Quote, This conviction sends a strong message that harming of our threatened species will not be tolerated. 
Everyone needs to know the rules. Great whites play an important role in marine ecosystems. End of quote. The fisherman was ordered to pay $18,000 for the offence. That's $18,000 for killing a fish. How did the life of a fish acquire that much value? Well, the question is conveniently and unequivocally answered at, of all places, the Australian Museum in Sydney. The museum's current major exhibition is simply called Sharks, and for $30 it will give you a perfect representation of the reverence politicians, bureaucrats and researchers have for these creatures, at your expense. Sharks, the exhibition says, have survived for hundreds of millions of years and five through five global mass extinctions. But now us awful relative newcomer humans are destroying their habitat with our global warming, industrial fishing and pollution. The great plastic garbage patch in the Pacific Ocean, for example, is three times the size of France and is contributing to the destruction of the shark's habitat. Really? I emailed the museum asking for a photograph of this garbage patch or any other evidence that it actually exists, but I didn't receive a reply. Worse, the Chinese are killing 73 million sharks a year for shark fin soup. Well, so they say, this figure of 73 million is often repeated, but the research behind it is sketchy, to say the least. The only substantiation offered by the museum is a quote from Vic Pedamores, the chief shark scientist from the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries, who says, quote, most of the shark fin ends up in China. China has huge fleets and yet China doesn't report shark hatches to the International Union for the conservation of nature. End of quote. I also asked the museum where the figure of 73 million came from and again, no reply. The practice of shark finning is routinely used by national and international environmental bodies as the main reason for protecting sharks around the world. Naturally, this is conflated in places like Australia with the need to also protect dangerous sharks at our beaches. The, the, Museum Australia, the Australian Museum exhibition also quotes indigenous people at length talking about their inherent affinity with nature. Quote, it's a massive practice to learn to look after the ocean, says one man who identifies as a member of the Bidjigal Darawal tribe in New South Wales. He goes on, the animals tell us about themselves. We have to look and listen and spend time with the animals. In learning to love something, you lose fear. End of quote. See, that's where us dumb white people go wrong. We don't listen to the animals. And we are afraid of the ones with massive jaws, serrated teeth, and a tendency to occasionally kill people. And that brings me to the main, main theme of the exhibition. Sharks deserve our respect. Quote, First Nations peoples of the sea in Australia and the Pacific have always respected sharks. The exhibition lectures its visitors. It goes on, they are often seen as ancestors 
and sometimes God's. End of quote. The disturbing thing about this point is that scientists agree with it. In January 2015, the beaches in Newcastle, New South Wales, were closed for 10 days consecutively because of an infestation of great white sharks. Most of them were juveniles, but two fishermen in a tinny filmed a five-metre monster a few hundred metres offshore. The city's residents were understandably rattled. It was school holidays, the middle of summer, and to most time, the memorable time of year when they get together with kids and family on the beach. CSIRO shark expert Barry Bruce was interviewed by Channel 9 at the time. He said the beaches should remain closed and that Newcastle people needed to show the sharks, quote, respect. Well, he's not alone there. Most marine scientists are drawn to studying these species because they revere them and often assume the role of representative spokespeople. South African marine biologist Alison Cox says, for example, quote, they are complex and majestic animals that are completely misunderstood, unquote. You can say that again. The, the Australian Museum exhibition goes one better, calling sharks ecosystem engineers, implying that they too have been to university and graduated with a degree in marine biology. If you think that reveals a condescending attitude by Bruce and people like him towards ordinary Australians who don't want to be attacked while swimming in the ocean, you'd be right. Bruce was one of the lead authors of the 2002 White Shark Recovery Plan. Its number one priority was to, quote, recover white shark numbers in Australia, unquote. But the curious thing about it is what it doesn't mention, human safety. There is a passing reference towards, uh, towards the end of the report suggesting someone somewhere might like to write up some safe swimming and diving guidelines, but that's it. So just to be clear, the White Shark Recovery Plan was implemented to help increase the size and abundance of great white sharks in our waters, but it included nothing about protecting people from the inevitable consequence of that, which is more attacks. Oh, and it was published two years into a 20-year spike in attacks. That has led to the deaths of 48 Australians and counting. The White Shark Recovery Plan was the first of dozens of academic papers about great whites that have since been written by Australian universities and environmental authorities, few of which are of use to anyone not pursuing a career in the field. One aspect of the topic these research papers mostly avoid is whether the size or abundance of sharks, especially great whites, is increasing. 19 years after great whites were protected, the CSIRO finally conducted a supposedly serious study into the species numbers. It laughably found the population off the east coast of Australia was somewhere between 2,909 or four times that number, 12,802. Yeah, and that was four years ago. 
Since then, despite increasing sightings and attacks, nothing. But they have found time to research such things as whether sticking battery-powered tags into great whites has any effect on their behaviour. Some of the people who contributed to this report are the same people who do the tagging, so their, con their conclusions were unsurprisingly positive. Or whether bull sharks in Fiji form long-lasting friendships with each other. And here's one of my favourites, whether various types of swimmers and surfers on the surface of a pool at Taronga Zoo looked from underneath, in other words, the shark's eye view, like a seal, which was a contrived attempt to explain that people attacked by sharks were simply a case of mistaken identity. I'm sure that would be reassuring, a reassuring final thought if you ever found yourself being dragged under the water by a shark or the victim of a repeated attack, which does happen. The reason for all this obfuscation is obvious. If it was found that the white shark recovery plan had achieved its aim of replenishing the species, as the increasing sightings and attacks would suggest is true, then the researchers who have dedicated decades to this field would need to find a different field to focus on or go back to stacking shelves at Woolworths. How many sharks would be the ideal number? New South Wales Department of Primary Industries shark expert Vic Pettimores said in 2016 that, quote, there were probably 30,000 white sharks off Australia's coast before we arrived on this continent. And that, and, and that it was stable at that level for thousands of generations, end of quote. I asked him at the time if he thought 30,000 was the ideal number, but he declined to answer. Pettimores incidentally delivered a TED talk in Canberra 10 years ago, in which he laughingly described the two fatalities in Western Australia that year as a, quote, bumper season. But he assured his audience it was an anomaly and that the following year would see a return to, quote, normal levels. Well, allow me to remind him that it hasn't. In fact, there have been 252 recorded encounters with sharks at Australian beaches since then, including 27 fatalities. The actual number of encounters is far higher than that because in Western Australia and New South Wales, they became so routine that surfers simply stopped reporting them. I've asked Pettimores several times over the years if he regrets cracking that joke about the bumper season. Again, no reply. A lot of research has gone into finding ways to force you and I to live with this increasing danger. When there was a series of serious attacks in northern New South Wales, including one fatal in 2015, then New South Wales Prime Minister, My Premier Mike Baird responded, not by questioning if there were too many sharks inhabiting our beaches, which for a greenie like him would have been sacrilege, but by convening an international conference of experts in Sydney to come up with novel ways to prevent the sharks attacking people. He put $16 million of, of taxpayers' money on the table to fund the best ideas over the next five years. 
That money was spent, as was tens of millions more by other governments around the country. But the attacks continued. The expensive experiments have included a sonar buoy that its inventors claimed could detect sharks, even distinguishing them from dolphins. After three expensive government-funded trials failed, the owner of the technology went looking for more government grants in California instead. Another device emits electronic impulses that supposedly deter curious sharks. The devices are designed to attach to surfboards, but frequently give their users electric shocks. That kind of defeats the purpose of enjoying the ocean, I think. The device also does not, repeat not, deter a shark in attack mode, which is exactly when you want it to work. And studies have found that sharks that make repeated approaches come closer each time, suggesting they develop some kind of resistance to its effects. Nevertheless, the West Australian government actually subsidises these devices to the tune of $200 each and has given the manufacturer $2 million. The method that researchers love the most though, because it is labour intensive and generates lots of pointless research, is the so-called smart drumlines. These drumlines, of which there are dozens off New South Wales, alert a nearby rescue crew every time they hook a shark, who rush out, tag the shark, then release it further out to sea. The New South Wales Department of Primary Industries claims the sharks, quote, move away from the area for several months, unquote, but have never released the data to prove this. So we will just have to take their word for it. Nevertheless, on the day a surfer was fatally attacked at Tuncurry, New South Wales, in May last year, a tagged great white was detected at the adjacent beach. It's not the only time a tagged shark, previously caught and released by people from our own government, has been detected in the area of an attack. Worse, two sharks were caught and released at the same beach the day after the Tancari attack. If a fatal attack didn't signify to the people involved that, that there were already too many sharks at the beach, nothing will. An actual and affordable solution to this problem has been under our noses throughout these decades of research and overzealous protection. New South Wales introduced nets at popular beaches in 1937. Queensland also introduced them, along with baited hooks in some cases, in 1962. These nets do not enclose a beach. Rather, they act as a trap for any large marine animal unlucky enough to swim through them. Since they were introduced, there have been only two fatalities in each state at protected beaches. The effectiveness of these nets has been known for decades. In a seminal book on the subject called Shark Attack from 1958, Sydney surgeon Dr. V.M. Coppelson said that if the rate of attacks at the protected beaches, Sydney beaches, had continued after the nets were introduced, there would have been 14 over the ensuing 16 years. 
In fact, he said, there were none. The number of times the shark alarm was sounded also declined, he said, by 90%. Coppelson also reported that the Nets had a similar success in Durban, South Africa, where after 35 attacks in 10 years, authorities installed a series of nets 800 metres from shore and for the next four years, the number of attacks totaled zero. Why are these nets so effective? Well, that is a question you will never hear asked in our so-called marine research institutes. But the expl explanation is possibly very simple. In his book, Dr. Coppelson also interviews the, interviews the manager of the Norwest Whaling Company in Western Australia. Whaling was considered a legitimate industry back then, but it was made difficult by sharks swarming around the catch on the way back to the harbour. The manager of the company explained how they fixed it. Quote, The most successful method we have found to deal with attacking sharks is with a 303 rifle. A good headshot is usually enough to kill it. From our experience, dead sharks on the bottom are the best repellent available. After shooting a number of sharks, we have gone for 10 to 14 days without even seeing a shark in the bay." End of quote. This is not an isolated observation. In February 2015, a bunch of tourists on a shark cage diving boat near the Neptune Islands in South Australia witnessed a great white shark get rounded up and killed by orcas. Great whites were not seen again at the site for weeks afterwards. I've heard rumours of the same method being used illegally at towns around Australia's coast where there are fishermen who also surf. The fishermen catch and using weights drop a great white near their own beach. According to these rumours, shark sightings suddenly decrease. I repeat this because the rumours are persistent and are from both east and west coasts of our great country. If they are true, the actions of these fishermen are laudable because any sane person can see that great whites do not need protection. If anything, man-eating sharks are becoming too numerous at our beaches and should be culled. But you'll never hear a politician or researcher say that because the environment is now more important to them than the lives of people like you and I. The rationale for protecting large sharks like great whites is unique. They're apex predators, we are told, and without them, the marine food chain, the marine food chain will collapse like a house of cards. The Australian Museum explains it like this, quote, as apex predators, big sharks help keep the ocean's delicate ecosystem in balance. Sharks keep their prey's population in check, which means their prey's prey is less intensely hunted and the effect continues down the food chain. A healthy, food, a healthy fish population means plant life is plentiful, oceans stay healthy, and all is well. End of quote. Sounds a bit like the Garden of Eden, don't you think? There's no mention of the ongoing process of evolution, that environments change 
and species either adapt or die, as has been the case on Earth for millions of years. Even if great whites were about to become extinct, and there is no evidence that this is true, would that trigger an ecological collapse? There was a time, for example, when megalodons, which grew to about 16 metres in length, weighed about 60 tonnes and ate great whites for breakfast, were the ocean's apex predators. They died out about 3.6 million years ago. Great whites took their place at the top of the food chain and the marine environment somehow managed to survive. But now we are told that protecting tiny patches of coastline from just a few species will cause catastrophic damage. <sighs> so how did we get here? Well, there are two elements. One is Malthusian. There are too many people on Earth and they are destroying the planet, so the Greenies tell us. Losing one or two to nature's fiercest marine creature is to shark lovers, no great loss. The victim might leave behind some grieving family and friends, but overall the planet becomes slightly more, what's that word they use? Sustainable, with fewer people on it. The other element is a strange reverence for sharks. Now remember when these playful, semi-tame creatures were our favorite marine animals? Well, they're not anymore. They've been replaced by, yep, sharks, at least among those who are obsessed with nature anyway. Researchers who are meant to have an objective scientific perspective on the phenomena they study are not ambiguous about their admiration for sharks, routinely calling them majestic, graceful, noble, and even beautiful. In his book, Great White, from 2014, Australian author James Woodford described the species as a, quote, work of art. Another Australian author, David Owen, in a book called Shark, Peril in the Sea, says some sharks have, quote, proportionally large brain, larger brains than many of the so-called higher mammals, end of quote. Whether he was including himself among those mammals, Owen didn't say. It's fair to say, though, that it's not healthy to revere a creature that would eat you alive, and people who do possibly have self-esteem issues that are not worth investigating here. Yet, these people are the ones who have the most influence over the policies that determine whether you or someone else, perhaps someone's child, will be killed at a beach in Australia this year. About four years ago, I spoke to a senior federal liberal politician in Canberra who was a member of the government at the time and who agreed with me that the number and size of sharks off our beaches was out of control. Asked, however, why the government didn't do something about it, she said the government would be wiped out at the next election as a result. Well, they've since been wiped out anyway, but that aside, I disagree. If an Australian politician proposed allowing conventional nets and lethal drum lines at every popular beach in the country, thereby saving dozens of lives, and cancelled the millions of dollars of worth of re pointless research into sharks, he or she would discover, come election time, that there are millions of Australians 
who don't subscribe to all this Gaia-worshipping nonsense and just want common sense solutions to not very complicated problems. And before I go, other than the resource industry, Australia doesn't export much anymore. But power couple Angus Campbell, who is the chief of our defence force, and his wife, Stephanie Copas Campbell, are doing their best to change all that. Whether Angus where Angus can't go leading troops on peacekeeping missions, Stephanie will surely venture with delegations of progressive idealists to make sure that our regional neighbours are enforcing gender equality quotas and freeing women from domestic oppression. Here she is, announcing her appointment to the role of Gender Equality Ambassador a couple of days ago. Hello, I'm Stephanie Copas campbell Australia's new Ambassador for Gender Equality. I'm incredibly honoured to take on this role as the lead international advocate for Australia's commitment to gender equality and the human rights of women and girls and persons of diverse gender identities. In this role, I'm committed to listening to those who are dedicated to promoting gender equality and learning about the perspectives and priorities in communities, in countries, in our region and globally. Promoting gender equality is the right thing to do, but it's also the smart thing to do. It is central to Australia's diplomatic, economic development and regional security, as well as our international engagement. Well, take that, Angus. We don't need tanks and troops to engage in the region. We just need to fly into some third world atoll, listen to the concerns of women and persons of diverse gender identities. And hey presto, the locals will think Australia, or was that Austria? She kind of mumbled that bit, is the new great white saviour before the ladies in the grass skirts at the five star resort have de delivered the first post-conference poolside pina coladas. We just can't get enough of the adoration of, from our island neighbours, can we? Last year, it was Australia's Minister for the Pacific, Pat Conroy, promising at COP27 in Egypt to compensate island nations for loss and damage from climate change. He was promising them millions of dollars too. Who will Albo send next? Labor's own mean girls, Penny Wong and Katie Gallagher? Well, that would frighten the village chiefs into letting the ladies run the show for a change. Well, that's all from me. Alan Jones is back tomorrow and Wednesday, and I'll see you at 8pm on Thursday. Good night.